0: From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvokit. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvokit wherever you get your podcasts, and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. My name is Lenny Reinhardt, and this is a special episode, as my co-host today is Sheena Prevent. Sheena is a 3L in Loyola's Weekend JD program and is pursuing her certificate in public interest and social justice, a requirement of which is the Public Interest Seminar pushes students to undertake projects which advance topics related to public interest. As such, Sheena is joining me on the Podvocate today for her interview with Heidi Serneka. As you'll hear in just a moment, Heidi has devoted her career to advocating for incarcerated women in Latin America and beyond. Currently, Heidi works with asylum seekers in El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico.
1: Hi, Heidi. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to knowing more about you. You've such an impressive career and amazing journey that you've gone on. Give us the short story. Explain how you began your career and how you got to where you are now.
2: I like to say that I think I was just born with an extra it's not fair gene. And so I, I think my whole life trajectory has always been about trying to find ways to make things more fair, more just, more inclusive, pretty much all of my career options teaching high school in Belize, working at a drug treatment program for women, have all kind of had that focus. But my last job before law school, I worked with incarcerated women in Brazil. But I also did that kind of at a national and international level with some UN stuff, all related to incarcerated women. People always thought I was an attorney anyway. And at some point, I just thought, you know, it would be helpful to put tools and skills under this And so I made the decision to go to law school, but I just think, yeah, I just think it's a human constitution thing. And I have always been a, a strong advocate and passionate about trying to make this world a more just place.
1: I think that's so compelling. And personally, I'm considering a career in international human rights work after law school. And I want to know more about the work that you're doing. But before we sort of talk about that in a little more detail, I'm interested in your experience with transitioning careers. I also have a previous career. And and what was that like for you? You know, I'm actually
2: part of an organization called Marinole Missioners. And so I go where the organization is. And then based on our skills, we look for positions. The advantage to that is that when I started working at Las Americas, they had a full-time attorney pretty much, and they didn't have to pay me. So I wasn't competing with people that had prior experience for a salary. And so I think one thing for transitioning is really all the experience you bring into that career change, like life experience, prior job experience, volunteer experience, and everything like that. I feel like in a lot of ways, it's a transition because now I'm acting and practicing law, acting as a lawyer and practicing law. Um, But I feel like I'm still advocating for people Mm -hmm. in a way that's not different It's the same passion, the same activism, and the same care for justice.
1: Yeah, it sounds like there was, in your situation, a very sort of transferable skill set that really was only differentiated by getting the, the formal JD that you could now say that you had that, but continue on doing the same work.
2: Yeah, so I think it wasn't as huge a transition as some people who completely change fields.
1: And in those first years with your JD, did you feel like the work that you were asked as an attorney to undertake, it was consistent with the experience that you previously had? Or do you feel like it was really the more traditional first year attorney, perhaps not as difficult, m- much more of the doer type work? What was it like in your case?
2: Probably a mix of that. I mean, I definitely became personally familiar with the idea of the imposter syndrome and and feeling like I I didn't know enough to be representing people in people's lives and that they were all going to figure that out and realize that I wasn't really an attorney, although I was. And that's when I, you know, that's when I started talking to people who were like, yeah, that's totally normal when you start. It can last a couple of years, <laughs> I think because of what I'm doing as an immigration lawyer, I think I'm I still feel strongly that I'm an advocate. I just have different rules to play by and kind of more rules, you know, like I have to be careful about how I do things. I have more tools, also, motions before a judge, things like that, you know, but there's also more rules about how I advocate. And it's, and it's in a way, it's within the system instead of kind of fighting against the system.
1: Post JD graduation, you know, what, What role did you select to move forward with and why?
2: So for my first year post-graduation, I actually went to Kenya and I worked in two projects. I worked with Jesuit Refugee Services accompanying people who had fled South Sudan, Ethiopia, other countries and had come to Kenya. And so I was using law and studying law, but I wasn't practicing as an attorney because I was in another country, but it certainly helped me understand more how things work. Um, And the other thing I was doing was with incarcerated women, again, at a women's prison in Brazil, and I was supporting this really cool program they have where they train women in the prison to become paralegals so that they can assist themselves and their colleagues with their criminal cases. So in some ways, that felt very much close to what I had been doing before.
1: And you were really all along very confident that that was what you wanted long-term for your work to center around?
2: I know long-term I want my work to center around advocacy for people. I, I think it was hugely important to do the immigration defense in El Paso because I have like kind of feet in the fire, boots on the ground, firsthand experience with how that full immigration court system works, and even just representing people as an attorney. You know, I think had I gone straight from my JD graduation to a job with an organization, to doing advocacy in an organization, I think I would still feel like an imposter attorney. You know, I think I still would feel like, did I need a JD to do this? Am I really lawyering? Just in a way of, of asking that question, I think, that's different than now that I've had three years where I've actually legally represented people. And even though it was minimal, the first time that I signed a retainer with someone as their attorney, I, w- I was like, oh my God, I'm this person's attorney, <laughs> um, which was intimidating, you know?
1: Sure, yeah. You know, working with career services, some of the folks in the university I've been left with the impression, and based off of what I can find online, it's incredibly competitive area of career focus, human rights, on that sort of and such to break into. Uh, would you say that? Would you agree that that it is incredibly competitive?
2: I think it. I believe it is incredibly competitive, but I think there's all sorts of ways to get experience to to give you an edge, you know. I mean, one thing is that in the United States, the JD is a graduate degree. In a lot of countries, the JD is something you do right after you finish secondary school. And so at the international level, people may look at your JD and not realize that it's more like a master's. You know, it's not just an initial law degree. And so that may, may be difficult. I think that make things that make us more competitive in the international human rights are language skills, experience on the ground, so that be that somewhere in the US or be that in another country, so that when we're talking about what does this mean at at an international level, we have a concrete perspective to speak from. I think internships, a lot of it really is also just in my experience, knowing organizations. So when I started going to some of the UN stuff and I kept running into the same people that work with different non-governmental organizations from different countries, that made a difference, you know, and I thought, okay, if I wanted to get a job in this area, one, I know a bunch of people who could maybe tell me if there's a job opening or refer me, but I also understand how the organizations work. And I also think it depends on what area of international human rights. Because in some ways, when, when I think of UN, it's kind of glutted with people from the Northern Hemisphere, from especially like Europeans and, and North Americans. And so it really needs much more participation from the global South. That also probably would make it harder. But I think there are tons of strong international organizations that, that do both concrete action and advocacy, You know, that might have like projects right in South Sudan or right in Myanmar, and at the same time be working at a UN level or an Asia level or some level like that to try to affect change.
1: You shared so many great things there that I wanna ask you a little bit more about. Um, Maybe we could start with language skills. Uh, Do you have language skills? Maybe you could speak about your language skills and how it shows up in the work.
2: I speak Portuguese and Spanish and English. And I, for me, it makes a huge difference because not just because I can speak directly with my clients or when I lived in Brazil directly with the people that I was working with. I also think it makes a huge difference because we can speak with other advocates, you know. And so when I'm at an international meeting and there's advocates that are from South America or some Portuguese speaking country in, in Africa. Let me give you an example. I participated in the rewriting of the standard minimum rules for treatment of people in prison. And it was, it was called an expert group meeting. So there were representatives of UN countries, and then there was a group of representatives from non-governmental organizations that have UN status. Those smaller organizations, sometimes the meetings conducted only in English. So it ends up like kind of lopping off and limiting who can actually participate in that organization and whose voice is heard. And I feel like the more capacity I have to talk to people beyond the English speaking people. So the, who are the English speakers in Brazil? Mostly they're people that are middle upper class that have had the opportunity to study a second language. You know, They're not necessarily the grassroots people. And so when I speak the language, I can speak to anyone in that country instead of just people that have had I hate to use the word privilege because it's got such a negative connotation now, but I've had more privileges in their life and have had the capacity to learn a language. I also think from the U.S., it just shows a desire and an intent to broaden our world because we're kind of known globally for expecting people to speak English when we go to their country and expecting people to speak English when they come to our country.
1: Yeah, it is so important, you know, and as I reflect on the language skills that I have, I feel like Thai is probably my my best um, foreign language as far as speaking and conversating goes. But I did have educational training in Spanish, but I I wouldn't say that it's something that I could, you know, pick up and put into practice. Um, And how about for you, your language skills? Were were those something that you cultivated as a second uh, language or was it something you studied formally and then just put it into practice later on?
2: Actually both, but I just say that I think I is amazing because it's definitely far more unique than some of the languages that other people would have when you're looking at opportunities. I mean, maybe not as useful as Spanish right now, but I just also think it's super important. Probably would be able to talk to people that have less access to other people. I studied Spanish I went to a college that required language and so I studied Spanish in, in college. But then after that, I was just very intentional. Like I can't remember, spent two months in Guatemala at one point with a friend, got a very part-time job in Chicago as a caseworker at a health clinic that was primarily Spanish speaking. Portuguese came because when I because when I went to Brazil for 18 years, when I first went, the program I was part of paid for three month intensive language training. Okay. It, and then the people I work with did not speak English and so I had to learn Portuguese.
1: <laughs> That's right, yeah. I, similar story with my Thai. Um, I've been involved with Rotary International for better part of 15, wow. 17 years now and uh, Thailand was my first international living experience and no one spoke English. It was a great way for me to learn Thai. How long uh, were you in Thailand? For a year I just actually returned for the first time Um, earlier last month. Um, so I, it was nice to kind of go back after 10 plus years and see how this city had changed. I was in Bangkok and
0: Mm -hmm. go to a
1: Rotary meeting and and be a part of some of the work that's taking place there. I was able to meet with UNICEF, um, and the chief of child protection, you know, touching base on some of their perspectives as well. So, um, but yeah. How
2: was your tie after 10 years?
1: It was about like I thought it would be, Um, I remembered a lot more than I I thought I did, but I think speaking, um, people were, I think, still surprised with how well I spoke. So that was refreshing and sort of encouraging, like, perhaps I can put this on a resume. And that's uh, something else that you talked about, which was, you know, being proximate and on the ground. And, you know, and now I've mentioned that I, I previously lived in Thailand. I also lived in the Czech Republic for a few years, in Australia for a few years. Is there much to be said for those experiences that weren't related to the work? Or do you feel like there is a more specific need to be on the ground dedicated to the work? Is there some value in that, let's say, for those that are, you know, just entering the field to have this sort of diverse living experience?
2: Absolutely. That is huge value coming from the US, and I think Brazil is similar in a way because they're such big countries that we don't spend our lives crossing borders and meeting people of other nationalities. I mean, we can do that right in our own borders in the US, of course, in many, many ways, but I just think going to another country and being out of our comfort zone, being far from the food, the customs, the people that we're used to when it's not an English speaking country, you know, like like Thailand or the Czech Republic, having to communicate in a second language, that's huge. Understanding, understanding how hard it is to communicate, understanding that there's people in the world that bleed the way we bleed, are sad when things happen just like we do, just expands our world and our minds so incredibly. Those, those are huge experiences. I think um, they they make us more humble, right? I know you've had this experience where you have this big philosophical thing in your head that you want to share. And then you pull together all of the vocabulary you have and you're like, it's really hot today, isn't it? Because that's the only <laughs> words you know how to say.
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's very humbling
2: too, which is also good. Like we learn that we learn that we survive when we're not experts in something, right? because we, yeah. we've unfortunately kind of built in this culture and this desire to do things right. But then when we can't, that makes us nervous or anxious or we, we withdraw. And so all of those international experiences just make your world so much bigger and, and give us an understanding um, that we have a perspective.
1: It's so important. I really feel like it's those opportunities. And, you know, as I even sit here thinking about what I'm saying, I can see the faces of of, the people that I feel like share the world with me and they don't all look one way, you know, and Mm -hmm. for me, that's really what drives me is to know that things are different in other places. And while I think a lot of the focus that I've seen through some of the public interest efforts at Loyola We are really involved in the local community and maybe the, you know, a little bit more broader community. But I find that we really need to take um, a more holistic perspective and look at all the people, all the people of the world, and really consider, you know, what work needs to be done um, from that perspective. I can remember sort of having a breakdown moment last semester thinking, you know, but I don't understand. It's incredibly competitive, yet there's so much need. Why aren't we putting all of these, the folks who really want to get in, dig deep and do good work, why isn't there space for them to do that? I don't know, what, what are your thoughts there?
2: I mean, mostly I think it's a funding question, of course, but I also f- feel like, I mean, what I love, I love being in the trenches, you know? I love being in the jails with the women in Brazil or being in the detention center working with my clients But I do think that um, even if we had more resources, we don't want to kind of glut other countries with us and our ideas. And so if we had more resources, I feel like then we would need to have some people on the ground and some people doing more of the training trainers, you know, so that wherever it is, people in that community are learning with us and then they're the ones that are making things happen. I mean, maybe it would be worse if we had more resources, because we would have more people going out thinking that we can fix things. I mean,
1: I'm curious to hear what you think,
2: because you have all this experience. I, it does feel like a lot of it is is about resources, though.
1: I do understand the resources piece. and I think now there's a lot of attention placed on really community-centered lawyering and working on behalf of the people and understanding what they want and desire versus maybe writing them a prescription for what that is. So I think that there's a lot yet to be understood there. But sort of that aside, I was in India in 2018 um, with Rotary. We were there for subnational polio immunization event. We were on the Western Bank. And it was really after that trip that I applied to law school, Um, you know, I was really on a mission to amplify my ability to make a change in the lives of others because I saw or was reminded perhaps of just how many p- people and how many different types of call it, needs there are. So on one hand, I, f- I feel that perhaps even in my lifetime, all of the work that will be done by, by everyone might just be a drop in the ocean. Um, so that's maybe the way I see it from one perspective, but you certainly wouldn't want to dilute the water with just one set of ideals or one philosophy but maybe I feel like there could be a, a better balance and I don't know what that is and I don't have the solution you're the expert I was hoping <laughs> you're gonna tell no, me no but I mean you are an expert
2: look at all the experience you have going mm-hmm. places hearing meeting people stepping in and then stepping out you know Um I think absolutely right there's so much that needs fixing that we could have like Think of it, if we had a whole population doing this, then we'd all have a different frame of mind. But um, I do agree. There's so much that's fixing. We could have so many more people.
1: I really hope to see in the future uh, somehow, I think, just an increase in opportunity for people to figure out in what way they can contribute their skills. We see that through pro bono work. Um, But we know that pro bono clients get a different service than a lot of um, folks who are able to afford representation and, and such. It's a, I don't know if it's bewildering is the right word, but I just often feel if, if we are just a drop in the ocean and, you know, the world will just keep turning in whatever way, you have to hope for impact. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. people who are doing this type of work, they want to see the world change. They are committed to giving, of, giving themselves and of their lives to the furtherance of whatever their particular areas, area or areas of interest are, you know, and I think that you have to sort of be compelled to believe that things will continue to improve and not just sort of regress um, to have the stamina to show up every day.
2: No, I I mean, I totally agree with you. I absolutely like feel like there are times when I think we're not winning (laughs) or we're actually losing ground. I sat in on a conversation with this group that I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically advocates in action working on issues, especially related to families of people in prison. They were like this mixed group of of people from diverse places, super grassroots, kind of asking your questions. What can we do? Um, And when I see a group like that, where there's this amazing prison reform organization out of D.C. that started chapters all over the U.S. and has international chapters, and that prison reform organization is returning citizens, also known as former prisoners, right? Returning citizens, family members, spouses, advocates, and they're doing amazing stuff. I mean, they get on the national call and they're like, well, in Tennessee this month, we were working on this. And so when I see groups like that and I get to sit down on things like that, I think how much bigger the groundswell is than we know. It's, there are so many people out there trying to make change.
1: There really are. I think coming to Loyola, I've sort of joined a a different type of community. And I think it's one where it infiltrates every part of our life to consider how the work that we're doing um, is affecting the lives of others. So I know we share that in common. You're a a Loyola grad um, alumni. And I think what's
2: important there too, is that you are going to have this unique perspective that merges those. You're going to practice law or do what you do And you're going to have that model of rotary, which is people all over coming together that also have another life, but they stop it to go do stuff or they can. And so you're going to have all those ideas in your head as you're trying to work to affect change with your law degree. That's
1: the absolute truth. And I really, I do feel like I have choices in front of me. You know, one, I could continue down the road doing similar to, you know, as I have historically. And really have a second career or, you know, the current career that I have, or, you know, go maybe a corporate route or something like that, or I could, you know, pivot and really dedicate myself and try my very best to get my foot in the door here. Um, We've talked about language skills. We've talked about pursuing internships, um, on the ground experience, getting proximate with the work. In addition to that, is there anything else that you think is an important skill um, or an ability of any kind that's really necessary for getting that first opportunity? How, how are you going to suggest, I mean, how would you tell me if I could go out and sort of carve my way? What would you suggest?
2: Are you, or anybody like you that's listening, right? But are you thinking international human rights like like an international body like the UN, or are you more thinking, I would want to be working with an organization that has a global impact.
1: Right now, my heart's desire would be child protection work with UNICEF.
2: Just like applying to school, right? Aim for UNICEF, but also look for other amazing organizations that do similar work okay. that are a way to get a foot in the door, you know, are a way to learn, a way to meet people and have people meet you, get some experience, and then go towards UNICEF. I haven't had to like look, look for a job in that way in a long time, but I know some people would even say, you know, if there's an opening at UNICEF that you're not interested in, but is at least a foot in the door, sometimes it's worth doing that job too, just to get in the door, right? you know, but I think what you're doing, like keep deepening your interest, your information about child protection, just keep going deeper and deeper. And then, you know, it's funny, I have to say, we actually went and saw Hamilton last night and there's that one song in Hamilton where he says, talk less, smile more. I say that lightly, but I, I do think when we're starting off, we don't have a lot of opening to say what we think. So it's kind of the whole elevator speech, right? Yeah. So you and, like, we need to know our subject. We need to be humble enough to know what we don't know, but we That's need right. to know our subject. So when there's an opening, when something strikes us, we have the confidence to intervene. Or if there's an opening, we intervene with something meaningful,
1: yeah, it's interesting you share that. Um, I often say that's what's made me successful in my current career. I work in a male dominated industry and, and generally um, about at least 15, 20 years junior to most of the folks in the room. And the thing that served me best is knowing when to raise my voice. You know, I, it's, I, I had a rule for a long time, wait at least six weeks, you know, listen, understand what everyone else knows, figure out where my value is and where I can contribute and then know one to speak. So yeah. I, I agree with that completely. Did I understand correctly in looking at your resume that you were previously the campus minister? I'd be curious to know if, you know, your faith has in any way guided you in the work that you're doing.
2: It has, I, I, I think, I was telling somebody this this week, I think as human beings, we have a responsibility and an obligation to be responsible for our neighbor and to be making this world better. So I don't let people who have no faith basis off the hook. The formation that I had growing up in a a specific religion formed me to see that justice was part of who and how we have to live. And I think formed me to ask those questions. And actually also I think gives me a solid foundation to stand on. So people don't have to be like, who is that crazy lady in the red sweatshirt? Because <laughs> um, I can be like, Well, in this faith and this religion, we all say that. Do we all live up to it? And it impels me. And and back to one of your earlier questions, I do have to say that I'm I'm deeply grateful for it because there are times that I think like it is impossible to turn this world around. You know, but since I believe there's something bigger than me. I believe the impossible is still possible. It would be hard to keep fighting. For me, I think it would be. I don't know, but I think it would be hard to keep fighting if I didn't believe that.
1: Certainly, you know, your word choice of, you know, to keep fighting, I feel like is very real and reflects the type of effort it takes to kind of continue showing up for that battle, because that's really what it is. And, you know, it doesn't, you don't sort of win one case and you're, you're done. I'm, it, it definitely is a lifestyle. So I, I appreciate that very much.
2: I think um, it also like teaches us to care for the whole person. So when I do my job, when I'm working with somebody who's seeking asylum, and I'm in court on that asylum case, it's not a case that either I win or I lose. Either I look smart or I look stupid. It has taught me to see that human being and that whole life and the whole community, like they don't come by themselves, they come with their community and their family and everything. And so I think
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's also taught me to see the whole person in front of me.
1: I really like that. I'm gonna think about it in the days to come and what that means for me. But I think that's it's a really beautiful way to, to look at to look at everything. I am a, a mother, like I said, I'm part of the weekend JD program, and I'm curious how choosing this career path has impacted your lifestyle generally that might include your ability to have family or be close to family?
2: I wouldn't say that's the lawyer lifestyle because I went to law school later. I think it's like this mutual impacting making choices to be like open to living overseas to going to other countries to get like over my head in social justice has not made me perhaps as available as I would have been if I had chosen a different career to meet someone. I'm single. At the same time, it's given me a lot of freedom and it wasn't intentional. I thought I would meet somebody, but I always I don't know why, but I always knew that like I, I wouldn't make a life decision around that. Like if I met someone, I would have made that life decision, someone that I wanted to spend my life with. I would have made that life decision, but I wasn't I wasn't gonna stop because that was the focal point of my life. And in in a way, even though you didn't ask this, like I often thought, I would have, in that way, I would have loved to have children, right? It's a gift, I guess, for the life I've had that I don't feel incomplete because I don't have that. It would have been, I would have met someone and said, I want to, I want to parent with him more than friends I have that, that really feel strongly that they want to be a mother. However, that happens, you know, so I guess it's kind of mutual. Like, had I had someone in my life, I probably wouldn't be where I am today, right? If I wasn't where I am today, maybe I would have had someone, but it's made this whole freedom and this opportunity to really follow where my life leads me. I'm a godmother and an aunt, <laughs> my godmother, like seven times over, but it has freed me up in ways that you won't know for at least another, what, 20 years.
1: You and my children are a large part of the decision that I have to consider, you know, Can I move here? Can I take my family here? Will my children be safe here? Um, So it certainly has impacted um, the way that I evaluate, you know, potential career opportunities. Um, But it's possible, I think. And as I've moved through my program, other of my colleagues and peers have become mothers or are also, you know, getting great opportunities. Um, You know, I, I think that we can do it. So I'm excited to see how those things come together. I
2: definitely think that you can. I mean, I'm part of this mission organization and we have families. And even in that, like we had at the same time, we had families come to Brazil, each with two kids. And one family came with the perspective of this has been our dream forever and we hope it doesn't damage our kids. Mm -hmm. You know, we're gonna do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen, but but it's our dream, not theirs, right? Mm -hmm. And the other family came the exact same time and they said, we're doing this because we want our kids to have this. We want our kids to grow up in another country in another culture in another language and have this to carry with them for the rest of their lives. So um, it is possible.
1: Two different perspectives, but you're right. I think mm-hmm. it is possible. We've talked about the work, the stamina that it takes to continue to, to show up. Um, and the idea that perhaps we share in common this, need, like you talked about, um, to right the wrongs or to help those who can't otherwise advocate for themselves. And the question here is, are you confident that you're making an impact?
2: I mean, what I'm doing right now, I am confident because people have gotten out of immigration detention and people have won asylum. You know, and when I worked in Brazil in the jails, women had opportunities they didn't have if we weren't doing that the federal government actually started instituting policies considering the fact that incarcerated women, act, women actually might not be the same as incarcerated men. I am in that way. Uh, and I think that's the other reason to have always a foot on the ground or in the grassroots, because we have a better chance of hearing sooner if we're actually doing more damage than good. Today, I think, it's, I think the people we work with are often more savvy and they're more likely to call us to account if that happens. I think it can still happen Um, in the past pre-internet, pre a lot of things. Sometimes I think 50 years later, people realized, oh my God, I can't believe what we did. I hope that doesn't happen to us. Of course it could. I think that's the importance though, of having some way that's directly connected with people we serve to constantly, not constantly, but regularly evaluate and hear to make sure that we're not making bad decisions that profoundly affect that profoundly impact people in negative ways
1: if you could do it all over again would you choose the same path for yourself
2: I guess so I mean (laughs) I read a book recently I can't remember what it was called but it was like something like the midnight library I don't know if you've heard of it no but um Basically she was like this close to death and there was this library and it was all the different lives she might've led had she made other decisions. And then the heaviest book in the library was the book of regrets. And she had to keep opening that book and finding things that she regretted. Like I regretted, I didn't stick with the band when I was in high school and carry those out and realize that had she carried it out her life and the lives around her would have been completely different, not always better. I mean, if I did it all over again, maybe there'd be things I decided differently, but I've had this amazing adventure of a life. I've made lots of mistakes, but it's brought me where I am. And so if I changed any of those things, I probably wouldn't be here today.
1: You certainly have. You've so much to be proud of. Um, I don't know why it's not more customary, but oftentimes if people feel like they have to have some sort of personal benefit to, to say thank you. And I feel so call to just sort of say thank you to you for the work that you're doing, um, it's so important. And, you know, I, I really believe that it sends ripples of uh, love, kindness, and hope across the world. And, you know, there are those like me that are coming along behind you that are gonna be moved by those, those ripples and are gonna keep that work alive and going. So I so appreciate all that you've done all of the sacrifice that you've made and I appreciate you sharing some of your time with me today
2: oh gosh thanks so much Sheena I conversations like this also give me hope because you're the next generation or one of the next generations you know and and just keep reminding me that it's growing it's not dying it's getting bigger we'll get there
0: that's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Shea, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palwitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Jossen. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, This has been The Podvocate.